Hey dog people of the internet, welcome to Cog Dog Radio, a podcast all about dog sports, behavior, and training. I'm your host, Sarah Stremming of the Cognitive Canine, and I can't wait to share my behavior cases, training revelations, and general geekery with you. Let's get started. Dogs like food, right? Dogs like to eat. We would think that that's true. And generally speaking, it is true. We all like to eat on some level because we have to, to live. But what's really curious sometimes about dogs and their relationship with food is that they get food through us. And what that means is that things can get messed up and they can get messed up quickly. In my career, I have worked with dogs who had such severe traumatic histories surrounding food as it pertains to the human that was attached to the food, that before we could get any training done, that trauma kind of needed to be addressed. And the dog's relationship to food through the human had to be completely rewritten. And this is not an episode about repairing trauma. This is an episode about avoiding it because I can't really do a blanket episode about repairing those things because of how case specific all of that winds up being. I can, however, tell you how to avoid problems and how to avoid very common pitfalls when it comes to food with your dog. So I've got a simple do's and don'ts list for you all. And I'm going to start with the don'ts because, you know, I like to end on the do's. I like to end on telling you what to do rather than what not to do. But let's start with the don'ts. And trust me, every single thing on this list, I have seen and do see on a regular basis. So if you think who would do that, imagine it's somebody in your agility class. It's you under different circumstances. So don't pass judgment on these don'ts. Just consider them and think, think about what you're doing and, and make sure that what you're doing is not on this list. First and foremost, do not starve the dog. Do not intentionally withhold in order to make food drive, and I put that in quotations, stronger. Don't use starvation as a motivating operation for your training. When you do that, you create a level of desperation that will seep into your training and do some not great things for you. But on a deeper level than that, there's a couple other bad places that can go. One is just that on a fundamental level, I think that we owe them their daily caloric intake because we own them and they didn't choose that. So if you heard that like a local zoo, for instance, was withholding food rations so that one of their animals would kind of do what they want it to do. Like maybe it, maybe they want it to come out on display so that people can see it. And so they withhold food unless it comes out on display. Maybe that sits fine with you. Maybe that doesn't bother you, but maybe it does bother you because you're thinking from about it from an animal welfare type of standpoint, which is how I would think about it. Don't withhold food from your dog. Now, of course, overfeeding is as big of a problem, but we're going to talk about that later. So don't withhold food. Don't fast your dog on Friday because you have a seminar on Saturday that you want them to be hungry for. Also, 
if you need food to work for you and it's not working for you because the dog isn't hungry enough and you're going, well, Sarah, fasting this dog is the only way that I can make food work for me. And you are finding yourself in a position where you're potentially fasting the dog for days on end, understand that you will start to work within a negative reinforcement paradigm, not a positive reinforcement paradigm, because now that the dog is truly starving, eating the food offers him the feeling of relief. And relief can look a whole lot like happiness. Um, If you've ever been waiting on, I don't know, maybe a diagnostic, maybe a biopsy result. And the person on the other end of the line tells you the biopsy is negative, you're going to be relieved. And that's going to look a whole lot like happiness to to a bystander. That's going to look like joy to a bystander. But you know, if you have ever felt it in your body, how different it feels. And I don't want you operating when it comes to food on relief. I want you operating when it comes to food on enjoyment. That's why we don't withhold. That's why we don't starve. Next up, don't free feed. Unless there is a medical reason that your veterinarian has provided you with to leave food available for your dog all the time, you should not be leaving food available for your dog all the time. Especially if you want to use food to your advantage, it shouldn't be available to them. For me, food is like the best currency I have with my dogs. And so I don't just give them a money tree. Okay, I feed them an appropriate amount every day. I make sure that they're fed, but I don't just leave it sitting around. Also, don't force feed. You're, you might be confused, but it is actually common in certain, I'm just going to say, um, especially in confirmation dogs that are on the road, to be force fed. Please don't at me. I know these people. I've been involved in dog shows for a very long time force feeding dogs on the road is common because you don't want them to drop weight and they're stressed. So they stop eating. I have had clients whose dogs were picky, who refused meals, and it caused the client so much distress that they force fed the dog. They shoved food down the dog's throat. These are people who love their dogs. These are people who became so distressed that their dog was not eating, that they acted in ways that we might think are outlandish. But again, do not pass judgment on these people. They love their dogs just as much as you do. That's why I'm just saying, just don't do it. It will damage the relationship, the triangular relationship between you and the food and the dog if you force it down their throat. So don't do it. Also, the biggest thing, the most common thing that damages this triangular relationship is when you get weird about the fact that your dog's not eating. If you put a bowl of food down and they refuse it and you get weird and you get panicky or stressy or you start to try to beg them or you pick it up and you add yummier stuff to it and you put it back down, blah, 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 you're damaging that triangular relationship. So when you pick that thing up and you put yummy stuff on it or maybe you feed them like so much food because you want them to eat enough and you know they're going to eat so much like a percentage of what you give them so you feed them way too much you are damaging that triangular relationship between you the food and the dog also though don't offer food and accept no as an answer now 
you just told me, Sarah, not to get weird and not to try to make them eat. So here's what here, and I'm going to get deeper in the, in the do list and the what to do list. But if I offer my dog a meal, first of all, any of my dogs, if they're offered a meal and they refuse it, then we're going to the ER. They're sick if they are, if they refuse food. And that's really important to me, which is one of the reasons we're having this conversation, because I want you all to have that as well, to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if your dog refuses food, something is very wrong and you can address that thing immediately. But if I offer you a bowl of food and you say no, and let's say I know that that's a problem for you, I'm just going to take it away. I'm going to take it away quickly. I'm not going to leave it down for 10 minutes. I'm going to just take it away. If I offer you food when you're inside your crate before I put your leash on to take you out and you don't take it, I'm just not going to take you out. It's not that I force feed you. It's not that I offer you something better. It's simply that I don't do the next thing in the sequence until you eat. As well as in a training session, let's say I walk onto the agility field and I offer my dog a treat and he doesn't eat it. I'm not going to do agility. I'm not going to reach my pocket and get something better. I'm simply going to not continue the sequence. And I could back up the sequence, go back, put your leash on, leave the ring. Can you eat here? I am not going to take no for an answer without changing the circumstances surrounding the food. Definitely, definitely do not offer food, have the dog refuse it, and then switch to a different reinforcer like toys. This is probably more common in dog agility than in a lot of other places where you offer the dog your bite of expensive as hell freeze-dried raw or whatever it is that you brought, or maybe it's even kibble, to your training class and your dog's like, I don't want that. And you're like, oh, I guess we're training for a toy today. Definitely don't ever up your ante when the dog says no. That's like, that's, that's come through in a lot of these don'ts that I've already said. Don't give them something better when they say no. And if they think toys are better, definitely do not go there. There's a bigger problem with toys. It has to do with, you know, the nervous system. And it has, you know, it's a little more complicated when you up the ante to this high arousal reinforcer. But in general, consequences drive behavior. And so... If you're providing a consequence of a better reinforcer, when the dog refuses the reinforcer you offered, you are training that refusal. So what do we do? Let's go to the to-do list. Feed scheduled meals. Okay, so that's the opposite of free feed. Scheduled meals. I don't care if it's twice, once, three times a day. It should be scheduled. Meaning I, I'm actually a big fan of not doing it at the same time every day. But for me, I feed in the evening. My dogs tend to get some kind of puzzle toy in the morning and then maybe a training session during the day and then a meal at night. Um, and that is a scheduled meal situation. If my dog refuses dinner, again, I'm going to the ER. But let's say if my dog kind of does that, I pick it up and they can, they can wait till they're calm in the morning. That's fine. Use good reinforcers. Don't train dogs with stuff they're meh about. I am, you know, a, a lot of people say train puppies with kibble only, only kibble because you you have nowhere to go if you start with your hot dogs and your cheese and your whatever, right? I totally disagree. I'm going to train whatever the, I'm going to train with whatever the food is that the dog's going to work for under the circumstances that I'm asking the dog to work in from day one. 
And you guys, I don't have a problem with it. My dogs will work for literal anything. Cardboard, I mean, seriously. So I'm going to use something that my dog thinks is good. I get asked all the time, what value food should I use for this? I'm never using low value, never. And you know what turns out? My dogs don't have low value is what winds up happening because they get so much value for that triangular relationship of me to the food to them that they trust it's going to be great for them and they eat it and they love it and it's fine. I don't need to worry about what treats are in my bag. I don't need to worry about what treats are in the training building or in my car. I just use what I have. I absolutely use hierarchical reinforcement in the strategic shaping of dog behavior. I absolutely do. But in general, when I go out to train the dog, I'm using something high value pretty much every time. So use good stuff. Don't try to offer them stuff they don't like and try to train, like, especially before they love training. I just told this to a student before the dog knows they love training, use very high value stuff. Once they know they love training, they will work for lower value stuff. Do feed strategically. Okay. So what that means is you are going to build on the likely behaviors that you have. If you know that your dog, once he sees dog agility, will not eat, you're going to find a place where he's more likely to eat and build from there. If you know that your dog can't eat once you get outside the house, where's the place that's closest to being outside the house that he can eat? And again, build from there. So build upon your likely behaviors. Insist on eating before anything exciting as as just a good puppy raising procedure. And that's especially for high drive worky dogs, which is the types of dogs I like and the majority of my clientele. And what that means is you are going to eat a cookie before I let you out of the crate. You're going to eat a cookie before I take your leash off. You're going to eat a cookie before I put your leash on to take you out of this house. You're going to eat a cookie before I let you go in the backyard. Insisting that the dog eats something before they get to do something excitement is the first form of self-regulation training that I do with young dogs. If they can control their nervous system enough to take food, eat it, swallow it, before something exciting happens, when they're in that anticipatory state, they're going to be more successful performing other self-regulatory behaviors. Feed cleanly. And I don't mean clean eating. <laughs> okay. I don't mean that silly pop culture thing. I mean, my God, feed the dog in such a way that the food is easy to access for them. And they're not fumbling constantly trying to get it from you. This took me a really long time to figure out. I was a pretty sloppy food deliverer. And so here's some simple ways to get this right. Eating off the ground is easier than eating from your hand. So if the dog's having a hard time eating, try feeding them off the ground instead of your hand. The hand is a social exchange. When it is, when you just drop food on the ground and the dog eats it, that is much less the triangle. Once you are feeding from your hand, you are 100% engaging in the triangular relationship between you, the food, and the dog. And so because of that, you need to be extremely clear and predictable in the way that you deliver that food from your hand. I really like to just put it in my palm and cup the food under their mouth like I'm feeding a horse. 
Um, there are a few situations where I'm going to feed them between my fingers. It's probably because I need their head in a precise position. I'm going to practice that. I'm going to try to be really good at it. I'm going to use food that makes it easy for me to do well. But generally speaking, feed them from a cupped hand. Be, be so clear. In fact, I don't care how you feed them. Just get really good at it. Practice it so that they don't drop it and they're not snapping at you to try to get it. And, you know, if your dogs are really sharky, that's about the way that you're feeding them. Um, you know, unless they're in, obviously I know that when they're in anxious or aroused kind of, they'll get a little bit snappier, but they're snappy all the time. That's about the way you're feeding them. If you're tossing a treat for the love, you're not throwing Mardi Gras beads, throw it, show it to the dog and then toss it to a specific place on the floor. Do not fling it. The number of times I tell people not to fling food in a day is a long list of times. <laughs> and the thing about it is, you don't know that this matters until you commit yourself to it and you see how much less frantic your dog is, how much more likely they are to work for you for food in any given circumstance. It is so worth doing. Offer the food. Don't shove it at them. When I see dogs, when I see handlers whose dogs are kind of routinely picky, I watch how they feed. Guaranteed, they are shoving the food in the dog's mouth like a mama bird shoving the food in the baby bird's mouth. That's the kind of action that we're talking about. Cupping your hand will help you to offer rather than shove, but think about it. Pay really close attention this week to how you're feeding your dogs. See if you can alter it. See if you can be more clear. And then moving on from uh, clean feeding, think about kind of this, then that. So that's the same thing as feeding before something exciting. So it's, I'm going to feed you and then we're going to go do this. And I'm going to feed you and then, and then we're going to go in the agility ring or I'm going to feed you and then I will get the toy out. But also if I'm going to use boiled chicken or something really, really high value for my dog, I'm probably going to make sure that they'll work for kibble before I do that. So especially if I'm in kind of a tough environment, I'm going to make sure that they can eat the lower value food before I'm going to bring out the good stuff. And then I might bring out the good stuff strategically for a reason, but I'm going to make sure that they can take the lower value stuff first. Consider reliable acceptance of food reinforcers as a prerequisite skill for literally all of your other training. If the dog cannot take food reliably from you, you have to fix that before you get to move on. You don't get to proceed to other foundation skills because, well, because the dog will work for toys or because maybe you're using an aversive tool that can make the dog do it like a prong collar. Rather than thinking of that as okay, focus on eating from you as a core prerequisite that you do not proceed without. So those are your food do's and don'ts. I hope it's helpful. I hope that you dedicate yourself to really caring about that stuff. All right, and let's dive into some Patreon questions. The first one comes from Kaylee who writes, I recently bought an Icelandic sheepdog puppy and I'd love to get some advice that you have on raising this breed. He's such a fun pup and I plan on doing sports with him when he's old enough. As expected, separation anxiety or really FOMO is a big thing we need to work on. Hi, Kaylee, congratulations on your Icelandic. They are so much fun. Number one, I'd, I'd really encourage you to talk a lot to your breeder. You should talk to your breeder a lot about raising of Icelandics. My experience is an N of one so far. <laughs> so 
For me, yes, I work really, really hard on Rhea. I worked, especially in the beginning, really hard on Rhea being happy and confident about being alone or confined because I know that that's a thing for the breed. And then I also worked really hard on her being able to take in new situations quietly. And a lot of that involved not freaking out about her barking, allowing her to bark if she thought she needed to, but orchestrating the situation so that she didn't really have to. That and they do tend to stare at birds that are flying in the sky as a breed. And so anytime there was a bird above, I would just miraculously be doing something very interesting on the ground so that she would divert her attention off of the bird. Best of luck. Have so much fun. All right. This one is from Carice. I have a 13 month old Alaskan Klikai. She is reactive on the hypersocial end of the spectrum. I've been listening to your archive of podcast episodes, especially the Barky Lungy series and the hypersocial episode. I have a follow-up question to those episodes. The moment I step outside of the house with my dog, her energy is frantic. She's anxious, but also bubbling over with excitement. Loose leash walking has been extremely challenging, although that is a whole other issue. How does Dog Park TV work in this situation? There's only so much distance I can add or increase. How do I begin desensitizing her to other dogs when being outside in general is over-arousing for her? How do I assess that we can move closer to the dog park when her frustration comes from not being able to get closer? This is under the presumption that all her needs are being met. I take her on decompression walks and hikes, enrichment activities at home, plenty of play, some obedience training throughout the week, etc. Okay, so when you said loose leash walking has been incredibly challenging, although that is a whole other issue, I beg to differ, it's not another issue. Her ability to respond to cues and walk nicely with you on a leash is actually a prerequisite skill to addressing her reactivity. So really, really zeroing in. And I, th- I would encourage you strongly to get some in-person help, some in-person, nice, you know, reward-based help for this. She has to be able to walk next to you, sit down, nose target, respond to cues like that in the real world without dogs around before you can truly address her reactivity. So that is my biggest piece of advice for you is to dive in on that training front with some in-person help before you try to do things like dog park TV. Next one is from Sarah who writes, I would love to keep up the puppy theme and get some advice on socialization versus socializing and how to find the balance. I have a very boisterous and confident four-month-old Cocker Spaniel puppy. And whilst I want him to learn dog talk, should I be limiting interactions when he's very growly, wrestly, and ignores dog's submission signals? Should I be reverting to dog park TV now because he's so intense with other dogs? Are there any books or guides on puppy socialization or dog behavior I should look at? And thank you for being a wonderful resource. Well, thank you. Congrats on your puppy. Number one, I'm always thinking about behaviors. I'm not thinking about socialization in quotations. I'm thinking, am I seeing the behaviors I want to be seeing or not? And if I'm seeing behaviors with other dogs that I don't like, then I'm not going to have the dog around those types of dogs. My puppies are usually around a very curated group of adults because I want to see appropriate behavior from them. I don't let them get into, you know, insane raucous play with other puppies their age, or especially puppies that are bigger than them or causing big behaviors. You want to always be paying attention to the behaviors that you're seeing and then adjusting accordingly rather than following a script or an outline. It does sound like your puppy could benefit from some, from more engagement type training with you and obedience training with you versus this play with other dogs. And then I really like Laura Van Arendonk Ba's book, Social Savvy and Civilized, something like that. (laughs) We'll link it in the show notes on puppy socialization. 
Okay. Next one's from Sage. Sage writes, you've mentioned a couple of times on your podcast that you listen to other dog training podcasts. Can you do a roundup of the other podcasts and other mediums out there that you like and trust? Who else should we be listening to? I also just listened to your episode on managing reactivity with Dr. Cook. Love this episode. One of the things that I'm struggling with is how to balance management and decompression sniffing type behaviors. At the end of the podcast, Dr. Cook mentioned doing a management practice around every block or so. I see how this would get a really engaged walk and practice a lot of great skills, but I worry that for dogs to tend towards workiness, this would defeat the purpose of even a short period of disengagement. Okay, so first of all, um, the other dog podcasts that I listen to would be uh, Marissa Martino's podcast, Pause and Reward, uh, Hannah Brannigan's podcast, Drinking from the Toilet, and I also listen to the Canine Conservationists podcast with Kayla Fratt. If there are more, I am not thinking about them right now, and I'll try to link them for you if I do think of them. If I am walking my dogs in an urban area or a suburban area, they're not decompressing. It's not a decompression walk. It's not a sniffing walk. It is a managed walk. There is going to be engagement and I'm going to be practicing management. I would not practice a ton of management behaviors out on a walk in the woods where I wasn't going to see anything problematic, although I do practice them occasionally. I was recently having a conversation with somebody about the fact that my dogs are really worky and really highly engaged. And that's why not working them on decompression walks works so well for me. If your dogs don't want to pay attention to you in the first place, you should do more working when you're out in the world. What Amy was talking about is really suburban, urban, leashed walks. And on those walks, I want my dogs working. I want them paying attention to me. I know it's not a decompression walk for them any way I shake it. So I want it to be practicing engagement and good behaviors. And the last one comes from Zane, who writes, my seven-month-old Aussie will sometimes jump on me and bite my arms, tear my clothes when we're out on a walk. Silly, silly Aussie. This has been going on since she was four months old. We normally go to a large forested park and she's on a long line. If it's busier, drag line. If it's empty, triggers for her can be an extra exciting dog getting tangled in her leash and so on. But much of the time, the behavior seems unprompted. I've tried to redirect with toy, but this keeps her excited and she is still capable of biting me with a toy in her mouth. I've also tried scattering treats, ignoring her and kneeling down, calmly talking to her. But about half the time, she'll start biting again as soon as we move. The most effective method so far has been to ask her for some easy obedience, like a casual heel, which works about 80% of the time. She calms down and goes back to sniffing. I've been seeing less and less of this behavior recently. At home, she settles very well, and she has great focus in group obedience classes and is generally confident and balanced. What do you think? Are these the last remnants of puppy biting? How would you address this? So Zane, I don't think it was ever puppy biting. I think it was always controlling your behavior with his mouth, which is a very Aussie thing to do. It's not surprising to me that putting the dog into obedience behaviors solved the problem for you, and it's not a bad way to go. And if that is, if that response works most of the time, and it also, the behavior is diminishing for the most part, that's what I would probably keep doing. So keep it up and let us know how it's going. Thanks everybody for your questions. thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave me a review. If you'd like to support this podcast, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. You might even hear me answer your question on the show. For more content like the stuff you heard here, check out my online courses at cog-dog-classroom.teachable.com.